Hey folks, coming in hot with a little ad uh, for myself in my upcoming book. If you like this podcast, you are definitely going to like the book I wrote based on it. Unruly Figures, 20 Tales of Rebels, Rule Breakers, and Revolutionaries covers several people that I've never covered on the podcast. From queens of piracy in the Mediterranean to rebellious artists in New York to aboriginal resistance leaders in Tasmania, this book is full of rebellious folks you may have never heard of. It comes out wherever books are sold on March 5th. Pre-order it now. Link is in the show notes. Hey everyone, welcome to Unruly Figures, the podcast that celebrates history's greatest rule breakers. I'm your host, Valerie Clark, and today I'm going to be covering Nobuko Yoshia, a famous Japanese novelist. Yoshia is remembered as one of modern Japan's most commercially successful writers. She specialized in serialized romance novels and adolescent girls fiction, but she was also a pioneer of Japanese lesbian literature and known as a, quote, gender rebel. Before we get into her story, I just have two quick things I want to announce. Uh, I'm publishing a book based on this podcast. It's going to be called Unruly Figures, and it will be out from PA Press in fall of 2023. Um, I'll be posting exclusive content about the book for the Unruly Figures subscribers on Substack. So if you want to know more about the book and get exclusive updates, check out unrulyfigures.substack.com. The second announcement is that I'm planning to start doing occasional like watch-alongs of movies featuring people um, that I've covered on the podcast. If that is something that you're interested in, make sure you subscribe either on Substack or follow Unruly Figures on social media. Uh, I'm Unruly Figures everywhere. All right, let's hop back in time. Nobuko Yoshia was born in Niigata Prefecture of Japan on January 12, 1896. She was the only daughter in a family of five children. Her father was a police officer when she was young, but became a government official as she grew up, necessitating a lot of moves for the family. And a little note on her name, if you go looking for her work, you'll see her alternately named as Nobuku Yoshia and Yoshia Nobuku. This is because of variations in how Japanese names are translated into English. In Japanese, her name is said Yoshia Nobuko, which puts the family name first and then the given name. Sometimes that's transliterated into English and left the same, but it is often switched to Nobuko Yoshia to fit the English tradition of putting the given name first and then the family name. So Nobuko is her given name and Yoshia is her family name. I'll be referring to her primarily as Yoshia for the rest of the episode. Late 19th and early 20th century Japan was a really interesting time in the his- in the country's history. Japan had long been a very politically isolated country, um, but this was the beginning of what was called the Meiji era, when um, part of the Empire of Japan and named for Emperor Meiji. The era ended on July 30th, 1912, with, with the rise of Emperor Taisho. Um, but during these roughly 45 years, Japan quickly industrialized and emerged as a, like, as a world power. But the rapid modernization also had really profound social impacts, which a lot of people didn't like. It hugely impacted, for instance, the former samurai class, leading to the Satsuma Rebellion in the 1870s. Both of Yoshia's parents came from samurai families, and so even though she was growing up in this time of like huge social upheaval, they really tried to maintain traditional values within the home. Yoshia was expected to conform to the good wife, good mother role that was expected of her. In fact, Yoshia would later remember that, quote, her mother encouraged her to adopt traditional roles of female domesticity and obedience to men, while she herself remained in a a loveless arranged marriage to Yoshia's father, end quote. Yoshia began writing at a young age and published her first short stories when she was just 12. From then, she knew that the writing life was the one that she wanted and pursued it pretty eagerly. However, this apparently took her away from learning domestic skills from her mother. And I imagine this was probably the cause of some friction, though I didn't see that written down anywhere. 
It was when she moved to Tokyo in 1915, when she was probably about 19 years old, that Yoshia first began to outwardly diverge from these expectations, though I assume she felt like it didn't fit her long before this moment. She dressed in men's suits, defying gendered expectations of dress, and kept her hair cropped very short, defying actual Japanese laws requiring women to keep long hair. In fact, she became almost as well known for her bob and western clothing as she did her fiction. She put off marriage, choosing instead to support herself working. In this, Yoshia represented the modern girl of Japanese society. Fittingly, the majority of her audience fit the same bill. Her short stories appealed to a growing group of women who weren't really sure about marriage and children. Traditionally, Japanese women were married by the age of 24, but Yoshia's generation was putting that off to work in the public sector. Increased literacy allowed these so-called westernized urban women to postpone marriage, work to support themselves, and also have an income to spend on other things like books and magazines that published female writers like Yoshia, who could make a living writing for the first time in Japanese history. In her writing and in her public life, Yoshia began challenging the conventions of family life and women's role in society. She openly told people she was a lesbian, though this didn't have like exactly the same sense of rebelliousness and danger that it would have had at the same time in, say, the United States. By some accounts, Japanese society had long been tolerant of homosexuality and fine with public displays of affection um, between members of the same gender. This happened in part because the worlds of young boys and young girls were so heavily delineated as to be almost entirely separate. Children were educated in schools sorted by gender and, quote, it was common for young people to have romantic feelings for and even sexual involvement with the same sex, end quote. I didn't know this before researching this episode, but apparently Japanese society actually saw female homosexuality specifically as very spiritual, especially, quote, in contrast to the popular image of the carnal male version. Lesbianism was seen as a natural phase of life for teen girls, and with Yoshia's generation, it grew into an adult subculture. In 1923, when she was about 27 years old, Yoshia met the woman she would spend the rest of her life with, Monmoshio, a mathematics teacher at a Tokyo girls' school. For the rest of their lives, they were, quote, inseparable and openly lived together as a couple, writing steamy, of, writing steamy often erotic love letters to each other even when together. In 1929, Yoshia and Monma traveled around Russia, Europe, and the U.S. Yoshia was apparently very impressed by the life of like the American woman, seeing it as more liberated than her own cultures. When she returned from her trip, she, quote, vowed to no longer write about women who cried a lot and simply endured their, endured their miserable lot in life. Yoshia defied other expectations along the way. Um, it's maybe not like story-worthy, quote-unquote, in the same way. Um, but she was also one of the first people in all of Japan to own a car. She was the first Japanese woman to own a racehorse outright. And she also designed at least one of the five houses she would kind of end up owning by the time she died. However, Yoshio was never one for politics. Maybe this is surprising to some people. It seems to have been to some of her biographers. She was, quote, an ardent feminist, but mistrusted political parties generally and never became very active in the Japanese feminist movement. Her books may have inspired some feminists, but they weren't who she was writing for directly, at least. Certainly, her life benefited from various feminist changes, though. The Meiji Restoration, about 30 years before she was born, had reformed women's status in Japanese society. Most importantly for Yoshia personally, girls had not been required to attend school before 1860, but the Meiji Restoration had not just required that girls receive at least an elementary education, but had created a fad for girls getting good educations equal to that of boys' educations. 
The Japanese Women's University was established in 1901 when Yoshio was about five. And while I couldn't find if Yoshio herself attended, her career is only made possible by these reforms. Nevertheless, she didn't want to participate in the political realm herself. Um, and her aversion to politics became even more pronounced in the 1930s when national sentiment became really, really militaristic, which brought on a huge rise in censorship. Uh, she joined a government-sponsored group for writers. They shuttled her around Southeast Asia and China during World War II, where she wrote stories praising Japanese imperialism. I was very surprised to learn this because it seems outside of her wheelhouse. Um, and we're going to talk more about her literary career um, in a minute, but this seems so far outside of her wheelhouse, but she must have been good at it because she continued to publish nonfiction after the war, like alongside the fiction story she's more remembered for. Now, despite the fact that female homosexuality was at least moderately accepted in Japanese society at this time, there were no legal provisions for same-sex marriage in Japan. So same-sex couples who wanted to be legally tied to one another in some way had to take sort of a circuitous route to that. One member of the couple had to adopt the other the way that you would adopt a child. This allowed them to legally share property and make medical decisions for one another. And just FYI, as of a week before this recording, this is still the case in Japan. Being queer is not illegal, but there's still a ban on same-sex marriage and unions at the national level. Some parts of the country issue partnership certificates that grant rights to same-sex couples, meaning one doesn't have to legally adopt the other, but this practice isn't nationwide. All that to say that in order to be able to share legal and financial responsibilities with Monma, Yoshia adopted her in 1957, 34 years after they had initially met. And when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about Yoshia's literary career as promised. Today, I want to tell you all about empowering women as leaders. This Texas-based nonprofit provides scholarships and mentoring to women attending college at a non-traditional age. They've given over $300,000 in scholarships to over 120 women aged 23 to 64 to help them finish their degrees. NEWL has paired over 100 professionals with students for long-lasting mentoring relationships. I didn't know this until I heard of EWL, but women who have a mentor in college are actually 130% more likely to hold a leadership position in their workplace later in life. While financial aid is of course incredibly important, mentoring helps these students make a difference in the way they approach the rest of their lives. Right now, EWL is raising money for their next round of scholarships. Every little bit helps. So head over to EWLUSA.org to learn more about how you can support their students in Dallas, Fort Worth, and Austin. Again, that's EW Again, that's EWLUSA.org. As a young girl, Nobuko Yoshia subscribed to a magazine called Girls World. In an interview, she said that whenever it was delivered, she would, quote, savor every corner of it, taking great care not to get it the slightest bit dirty. I would neatly pile each issue on my desk and enjoy the way the stack grew higher and higher. Eventually, she began to enter writing contests the magazine held. Um, these contributions were actually central to the lifeblood of the magazine. Stories from readers could be up to a full third of each issue. She received royalties from these contests, which made up her first published stories that I mentioned earlier. 
After she moved to Tokyo in 1915, Yoshia began attending meetings of Saito, a pioneering feminist magazine in Japan. There she met other female writers who supported her early explorations of her own gender presentation and her writing goals. If this surprises you that she would be kind of part of this um, pioneering feminist magazine, uh, I think it's it's worth noting that the writers behind Saito didn't create the magazine with the goal of being like a political mouthpiece. They really were just trying to tell stories like by women for women. But that in itself was so feminist and so threatening that it became kind of this radical um, feminist magazine just by nature of existing. And so Yoshia, even though she didn't want to be a part of politics, kind of became involved at least with these people and, and, and was surrounded by their ideas, at least for a time. Um, between 1916 and 1924, Yoshia's short stories were serialized in a very popular Japanese magazine, Girls Illustrated, sometimes also translated as Girls Pictorial. These magazines really flourished in the early 1920s and, quote, swelled with stories, letters, and poems that emphasize what they often label shoju romansu, or girls' romance. The stories appeal to schoolgirls and other modern women like her committed to independence and self-sufficiency over traditional wife and mother roles. She published over 50 stories this way, and they launched her into fame. Yoshia quickly became one of Japan's most beloved and highest paid writers. The short stories would later be collected into the book Flower Stories. Unfortunately, only some have been translated into English. Yoshia's stories usually followed young girls on the cusp of adolescence and adulthood. The translator of one of Yoshia's stories, Yellow Rose, a woman named Sarah Frederick, uh, describes the stories as following, quote, the emotionally charged relationships among girls and the school and dormitory settings. These settings evoke a time when girls were under the supervision neither of father figures nor husbands, a time elongated by the expansion of women's education in Yoshia's lifetime. These stories and others like it, quote, describe an intensely emotional, often beautiful and erotic world for adolescent girls, end quote. These short stories often fall into a uniquely Japanese genre of fiction called Class S or Karusu Esu. The S is usually said to stand for sister, and the term refers to a type of romantic friendship between girls, which is usually distinct from a sexual relationship. It's my understanding that it can include sexual feelings, but usually does not. In fact, the genre usually focuses on senpai and kohai relationships, where one girl is somewhat senior in age or position to the other, though this is not usually a very large age gap. In fact, the short story I was just talking about, Yellow Rose, follows exactly this formula. The protagonist is a girl who has just finished school and become a teacher, who falls in love with a girl in her last year of school. They're only one year apart in age, but in very different periods of their lives and social stature. The genre of fiction was hugely influenced by the translation of Little Women into Japanese in 1906. Joe became a particular favorite of young Japanese girls like Yoshia, who possibly saw something of themselves in this little tomboy. In 1936, Class S stories would be briefly banned by the Japanese government for being, quote, feminine and weak. Uh, perhaps this is why Yoshia was unimpressed by the censorship in Japan in the 1930s that I mentioned earlier. Um, the genre was also sometimes lamented by educators of girls who thought that the stories influenced some very highly publicized double suicides of real girls who were pressured to marry after school but couldn't bear to be parted from one another. Nevertheless, the stories were tolerated more than, quote, equally heated stories of adolescent girls in heterosexual relationships, end quote. Occasionally these stories, or occasionally these relationships and the stories that depicted them were even seen as, quote, training for eventual marriage with a man, end quote. So you can see there's a lot of kind of fear and anxiety, like a lot of social fear and anxiety is being put on these stories. A lot of people trying to figure out what exactly they mean, as happens with every new kind of social wave, right? In 1919 or 1920, Yoshio published Two Virgins in an Attic. 
It's a girl's coming of age story and is thought to be somewhat autobiographical. It follows two female doormates at school who feel like outcasts and spend all their time longing after one another. Eventually, they decide to live together as a couple after graduation. It attacked male-oriented society and is considered one of Yoshia's most feminist books. It's also one of her bestsellers. A scholar of Yoshia's work, Sarah Frederick of Boston University, explores the limitations of the label lesbian for a lot of Yoshia's fiction. The entire class as genre hovers in this like liminal space of potential, where desire remains unfulfilled but is obviously present. And yet stories like Yellow Rose do make references to Sappho, aware of her as, quote, a figure available to express the desire of one girl for another. Frederick goes on to say, quote, and this is a, a kind of a long one, so buckle up, um, quote, the story Yellow Rose is engaged in active exploration of the rich but incomplete solutions posed by the possibilities of Western philosophy, emotional poetry, and travel to America as sources for different ways of thinking about the realities and aesthetics of women's lifestyles, desires, and conceptions of love. If one were to choose to label the story lesbian on the basis of some particular sexual representation in the story, Yoshi's literary style offers both ambiguity and potential. The reader knows there's an imperative for a kiss, but it is in quotation marks and unclear who would be kissing whom. Yoshia uses the ellipses extensively with its double meaning of what goes without saying and what has not yet been thought. It is noteworthy that the use of punctuation and ellipses in particular is one of the most remarked upon aspects of Yoshia's ornate style and used throughout her oeuvre. In the translation, I have preserved the meaning, I have preserved the many dashes and dots because they are so meaningful to the pacing, intention, sexual, and otherwise, which pervades the text. End quote. Whew, sorry, like I said, that was a long one, uh, but I definitely, I just didn't see any point in trying to summarize what Frederick was saying when she was making such a good point so efficiently. Um, this is something that fiction that explores same-sex desire faces in every culture when same-sex relationships aren't seen as legitimate. Anything more overt would have kept this work from being published, and so what remains unsaid and how it remains unsaid is as important as what is said. But that's why you'll sometimes see a little bit of debate in whether or not these stories are, are going to be considered uh, like lesbian love stories and stuff, right? And regardless of where each individual story falls, and Yoshi was prolific, so there's bound to be different answers for different stories, Yoshi's writing has reverberated throughout history. Not only did she influence class as stories, but her writing laid the groundwork for shoujo manga, a, gener a genre of manga aimed at teen girls that includes such iconic titles as Sailor Moon. These stories, where sisterhood is the dominant relationship, can look toward Yoshia for their foundational themes. Boarding school, addicts, flowers, dreamy writing, and unrequited crushes and longing. Eventually, with the fall in popularity of the class-s relationship, these stories began to turn away from romance and more towards self-fulfillment. According to Michiko Suzuki, a professor of Japanese and comparative literature at UC Davis, Yoshia created new ways for girls and women to imagine themselves. Her stories uphold the ideal of female sisterhood above all else. Other books by Yoshia include the notably titled Husbands Are Useless. In fact, many of her books after her ascendance into commercial popularity in the 1920s veered away from the queer stories of adolescent girls and began focusing on, quote, unhappy marriages in which a wife, after learning of her husband's affair, takes solace in the arms of a close female friend. But whenever something resembling a queer relationship begins to form, one character will end it in a typical barrier gaze trope, usually by dying or becoming a nun. In 1935, a critic wrote in Hanashi magazine, quote, there isn't a Japanese woman alive who hasn't heard of Yoshia. Though she primarily published girls fiction, and this is what she's primarily remembered for, she also published some social commentary works and some personal essays, especially ones about Manma that were pretty revealing about their life together. 
Though Yoshida's work did try to engender greater tolerance and understanding of lesbian relationships in Japan, the larger impact of class S fiction was to encourage like a somewhat derogatory perspective of lesbian until graduation. Many people in Japan still feel that as long as these same-sex relationships remain confined to school-age girls and are non-sexual, it's a healthy phase. The genre itself lost some popularity after World War II, only to regain some of that popularity in the 1990s, which also saw a resurgence in popularity of Yoshia's writing in Japan. And despite her popularity in Japan, and again, she became so wealthy off of her writing that she was able to own five homes, one of which is now preserved as a museum to her. Despite that popularity, her writing has rarely been translated into English, which is a real shame. Hopefully, more of it will be translated in the near future. Not a lot is known about Yoshia's later life. Um, after kind of the 1930s, we know that she, she kept writing and publishing. She continued to live with Monma, but we don't really know anything about her personal life from this. It's not well documented, or if it has been documented, it at least hasn't been translated into English. What we do know, though, is that Yoshia died at home on July 11th, 1973, at the age of 77, after a battle with cancer. Uh, she was survived by her partner, Monma Shio. And that's the story of Nobuko Yoshia. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Unruly Figures. I really hoped you enjoyed it. Um, the transcript and photos will be up on the Substack um, later this week. And yeah, come check it out. Thank you to everyone who has liked and subscribed to Unruly Figures. I'm told that this is where credits go, but Unruly Figures is researched, written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, all by myself. So if you are into supporting independent artists, please share this with at least one person you know. If you're feeling really generous, rate this show and leave a review for Unruly Figures on Apple Podcasts. It really does help other people find this work. If you want to subscribe, you can do that wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Unruly Figures. Come hang out. If you want to see photos related to today's episode, come find this episode's transcript on Substack. It'll be full of photos. While there, you can also subscribe for ad-free episodes and behind-the-scenes content. That's all going to be at unrulyfigures.substack.com. That's U-N-R-U-L-Y-F-I-G-U-R-E-S dot S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com. Until next time, stay unruly. Mm-hmm.